William Cowper was a renowned poet of the 1800s, and he was born in 1731 in England. His life was afflicted from childhood. Five of his siblings died in infancy. He and his brother John survived infancy, um, but several, really just a short time, just several weeks after John was born, his brother, their mother, uh, died. And after his mother died at the age of six, William's father sent him away to boarding school where William was intensely bullied, a horrific experience for him. And he longed, he just longed to be with his dad, to have his father, uh, whose neglect wounded him deeply. Even William's love life later on in life was afflicted. John Piper said of William Cowper, the battles in this man's soul were of epic proportions. Cowper struggled with despair throughout his life. He had four major mental breakdowns, plummeted into depression, even bouts of insanity, attempted suicide multiple times, and spent time in an asylum. In the asylum, under the care of Dr. Nathaniel Cotton, a devout evangelical Christian, William Cowper's eyes were enlightened to Christ. Cowper turned in the Bible to Romans 3.25, which says this, God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now, William encountered that, and this is what William wrote after he encountered Romans 3. Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Whatever my friend Maiden had said to me long before, revived in all its clearness with demonstration of the spirit and power. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. After his conversion, Cowper became friends with John Newton. William Cowper was afflicted. He was afflicted and distraught throughout his entire life until the end, yet it was the cross of Christ and the benefits that gave him gratitude and joy. During his life, William Cowper wrote a famous hymn, and some of the lyrics go like this, "'There is a fountain filled with blood.'" drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The place of greatest joy and lasting joy and pleasure is beneath the cross of Christ, beneath the torrent of the cleansing blood draining from the veins of Christ. It is the cross that has the power to take the dirtiest sinner and to wash them completely clean. So my aim is simply to direct your gaze to the glorious cross of Christ so that you can find in the cross of Christ, vast and measureless, happy.
happiness, endless happiness for your soul. And the power to live for God. So our focus is simply this. He was crucified for you. He was crucified for you. How different life and eternity would be without the crucifixion of Jesus. It is the cross that accomplishes redemption. Our salvation is lost without the cross. Look at how often John mentioned crucifixion in just a few verses. 16, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. 17, bearing his own cross. 18, there they crucified him. 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. 20, the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus. 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus. And there's even more after that. John wanted his readers, wanted us, to be certain of the historical fact of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he wanted us to believe it so that in it we may obtain eternal life and everlasting joy. As the earth orbits the sun, the sun's gravity exerts what's called centripetal force on the earth. Centripetal means center-seeking. So as the earth moves 67,000 miles per hour around the sun, the sun's centripetal force pulls Uh, the moving earth toward itself, thus maintaining its orbit. Without the center-seeking pull of the sun, the earth would fling off into space, away from the earth. Ah, but that pull just holds the earth in orbit. At the center of history is the crucified Christ. His cross is the pinnacle event. Through the cross, God exerts his powerful grace and pull upon people whom he pulls close to Christ. You can call it centripetal grace or center-seeking grace, which compels people to come to Christ and holds them in the orbit of holiness. The only force powerful enough to keep your life in steady acceleration toward Christ is the force of God's sovereign grace through the cross. Crucifixion and the Bible. Let's quickly take a several uh, take look at the several details from Christ's crucifixion from our text here. Verse 17 says, and he went out. Now that little phrase is important. He went out because in the Old Testament, God told Israel to stone evildoers outside the camp as a judicial sentence. More than that, you may remember the word expiation from several weeks ago where Jesus, as our substitutionary sacrifice, takes our guilt and sin, gives his life, and removes that guilt and sin from us. He is our expiation, We looked at Leviticus 16, where on the Day of Atonement, Aaron, the high priest, would confess the sins of the people onto the head of the goat, and then they would release the goat to walk out of the camp and to die wandering around in the wilderness. And that practice foreshadowed our sins being placed on Christ, the Lamb of God, who removes our sin by the sacrifice of his life. Now, Hebrews 13, 12 says, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. John describes Jesus going out, leaving the city, going outside of the gate, bearing his cross to sanctify God's people through his blood. Jesus went to Golgotha, the place of a skull. Some say that the place actually looked like a skull. Verse 18 says Jesus was crucified there between two others, and that's an important detail as well. Uh, that actually fulfills two ancient prophecies, Isaiah 53, 12, which says this, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. And Psalm twenty two sixteen, which says, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. He hung as the companion of evildoers. Crucifixion was reprehensible for Jews. Unthinkable. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, A hanged man is cursed by God. And the Jews saw crucifixion as being the same type of thing as being hanged. So as he hung on the cross, they see him as being cursed by God. Pilate's inscription explained his crucifixion, perhaps as a way to um, communicate to people what his crime was so that it would deter people from doing the same crime. The inscription was in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, Aramaic was the most widely understood language of the Jews in Palestine. Latin was the official language of the Romans, and Greek was the common language of the entire Roman Empire. The trilingual inscription above the head of Jesus allowed everybody to completely understand why he was being crucified. Sedition. Sedition. Now, was his crucifixion secretive somehow? Well, look at verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So Golgotha was outside of the city, but it was near the city. It was close enough to uh, be accessible to the people. Now remember that at the time of Passover, for this Passover feast, hundreds of thousands of people flooded into the city and they came to Jerusalem. Uh, Some estimates are over a, a million people in the city. So many Jews saw the inscription, which implies that many Jews saw Jesus hanging there on the cross in disgrace. His crucifixion was visible, his crucifixion was public, and therefore his crucifixion is historically credible. The chief priests and Jews objected to Pilate's inscription. Remember that they had rejected Jesus as king. They had one king, Caesar, which they've already said, They thought Pilate's inscription should have read, this man said that I am king of the Jews. It just suggested that. But Pilate's inscription seemed to be much stronger. The inscription, as it was, suggested Jesus really was king of the Jews, but Pilate refused to change it, I think, to further spite the Jews because he just didn't like the Jews. Uh, I don't think Pilate believed the inscription. I don't think that he had any level of faith in Christ. He just hated the Jews. But I also think that he kept the wording uh, on that inscription because God intended there to be some irony in it. Jesus really was king of the Jews. 
an ironic twist for Pilate and the Jews who did not recognize that truth. Though the Romans and the Jews disdained the cross, the cross nevertheless gloriously displayed the kingly power and love of Jesus. Distinguished scholar F.F. Bruce wrote this, quote, the crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all, because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree, end of quote. In Christ's ghastly crucifixion is Christ's glorious conquest. A king indeed. In verses 22 and 24, after the, 23 and 24 rather, after the, the four Roman soldiers pounded the nails through Jesus' hands and feet, they divided his hemation, or outer garments, which was common for the soldiers to do. Now, we know that there were four soldiers because they divided his garments into four parts and each soldier got one part. So there were four soldiers there. Now, his keton or tunic or the garment that he wrote, uh, wore next to his skin was unique. It was a piece of woven fabric, top to bottom, one piece, no seams in it. And the soldiers didn't want to tear that unique garment and so they gambled for it. Again, an important detail. Jesus' unique undergarment played a role in God's sovereign plan. Let me say that again. This unique tunic played a role in carrying out God's predetermined plan. This is exciting. Um, Now, some people believe that God is sovereign, but he's, he's sovereign over the big things. He's not sovereign over the little things. Does he really care about the little details of our lives? And the answer is yes, he does care. God is sovereign over every single detail in the universe. Even a tunic carries out God's sovereign will. The way his garment was woven helped fulfill an ancient prophecy written nearly a thousand years before Jesus. In Psalm 22, 18, David prophesied this, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So as they are gambling for this tunic, they are actually, unknown to them, fulfilling an ancient prophecy written around a thousand years before. That's God's sovereign will in the details. God orchestrated this event down to the minor detail of a tunic. And what I I hope that does for you is boosts your confidence in God. Boosts your confidence in sacred scripture. He is in the details of even your life. All right, let's be honest. Our faith gets frail. We feel like we're hanging on. I do. I hope you're with me in that. I mean, I hope your faith is stronger than mine, but I, I, we struggle with this. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we look at the gospel and we think, man, can this actually be true? Is all of this true? And in those times, which might be frequent for you, in those weak moments, come back to the fact that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of ancient prophecies with supernatural exactness. No one could have done it but him. It must be true. There are too many prophecies fulfilled that were written way ahead. Come back to the reliability of Scripture and the grace that God gives us through these fulfilled prophecies and and the promises that he gives to you in Scripture. In those weak moments, return to that. Allow his word and his promises to be the bedrock of your soul. 
Here's another observation. I'm not sure that I've seen this before, but it's very likely that Jesus hung on the cross completely naked. The soldiers took his clothes. Was there a loincloth? Possibly, but I doubt it. I doubt it. Probably not. His nakedness added to the shame of the cross. And many people saw him hanging there. Even his own mother. Even his own aunt. Even his friends. What a humiliating cross to endure. Yet he was crucified for you. Now a little bit of crucifixion history from history. Crucifixion in history. Crucifixion was a capital punishment that was used by the Persians, Seleucids, Carthaginians, and Romans, and likely among other nations throughout history. Jewish historian Josephus mentioned thousands of people being crucified in first century Palestine. So crucifixion was a prevalent um, part of of, uh, the Roman system there at the time of Jesus. Apparently, Roman soldiers would actually try out different crucifixion positions. And so it's kind of hard to nail down of exactly how Christ was positioned, but nails and a crossbar were quite common. Crucifixion was for most the worst, worst form of uh, capital punishment, of execution, because its public shame was mixed with excruciating pain. Victims of crucifixion could hang in the hot sun for a long time. Sometimes they survived up to three days. And in order to breathe, they needed to push up with their feet and they needed to pull with their arms, causing severe pain. If they collapsed, they suffocated. So in desperation, they kept pushing and kept pulling in order to stay alive and to struggle for life. Many did actually die of asphyxiation. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses believed Jesus was crucified on a torture stake with his hands uh, nailed with one nail through both hands above his head. And you might have seen depictions of this in in a picture through the years. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe the cross is a pagan symbol. They reject it entirely. Now, it is true that the Greek word stauros or cross is slightly ambiguous. Uh, It can mean a pointed stake but often refers to a stake with a crossbeam above it or intersecting it, as, as we are accustomed to see. There is plenty of evidence showing uh, that Romans did crucify people on stakes with crossbeams. But there are a few biblical details that strongly suggest that Jesus was crucified on a stauros with a crossbeam, on a cross with a crossbeam. Uh, number one, John 19, verse 17 mentions Jesus bearing his own cross which seems to suggest that Jesus was carrying the cross beam of his cross, which was eventually fastened to the upright uh, stake that was already secured. D.A. Carson noted that the cross in verse 17 refers to the patibulum or the horizontal beam of a cross. And Carson wrote this, The condemned criminal bore it on his shoulders to the place of execution, where the upright beam of the gibbet was already fastened in the ground. The victim was then made to lie on his back on the ground where his arms were stretched out and either tied or nailed to the patibulum. The cross member was then hoisted up along with the victim and fastened to the vertical beam. The victim's feet were tied or nailed to the upright. End of quote. Number two, in John 20, verse 25, Thomas said, unless I see his hands, or unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, 
Two hands and two nails suggests a cross. Number three, consistent Christian tradition holds that Peter was actually crucified upside down. And John 21, 18, uh, in John 21, 18, Jesus foretold Peter's death to him. And this is what he said to Peter. You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Stretched out hands implies a cross. In Matthew number four, in Matthew 27, 37, it says, they placed Jesus' charge or Pilate's inscription over his head, which suggests his hands were someplace else. Otherwise, Matthew could have written that they placed the inscription above his hands where they could see it. And fifth, uh, one last reason is that church history and Roman crucifixion practices strongly support the traditional view of the cross. The cross is biblical and the cross is historical. The cross happened. Thousands of people suffered the excruciating pain of crucifixion in first century Palestine, but Jesus was different. Jesus is God's son who suffered in the place of God's people. His pain was more than just physical pain. His pain was spiritual as he suffered the holy fury and justice of God. The cross of Jesus Christ is unique. It is a powerful and glorious reality that gives life to those who receive it by faith. His cross is to be treasured. Because it is the centripetal force of God's amazing grace through the cross which keeps you close to Christ so that you can enjoy enjoy all of the benefits of the cross. You are entitled to enjoy the benefits of the cross. They're yours. How right the old hymn is. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Yes, we will. Because it was for us. Why cherish the cross? Because it is power. The cross changes everything. It changes how we think, how we feel, how we choose, how we will, how we act, how we serve, how we work, how we love, how we love each other. The power of the cross is released in your life when it is cherished and when it is applied to your life. So let's turn to the crucifixion in your life. Does the cross make a difference in the day-to-day? When you get up on Monday mornings and you have a tough week ahead of you, does the cross apply? Absolutely. But there are too many encouraging things to say around that. So I just want to make one point uh, from Paul, and then I want to get into several applications uh, from John 19. Paul said this about the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. What difference does a cross make in your life? The cross is power for everyone who believes, for everyone who is being saved, real, legitimate power for you. The cross is power against anxiety, power against lust, power against laziness, power against pride, power against anger, power against discontentment, power against feelings of of emptiness and loneliness, power against spiritual apathy. The cross makes all the difference in our lives because it is the power of Christ, the power of God in our lives. See, for many people, they take 
the cross to be irrelevant, incapable, just impotent, not really carrying any meaning. They might know about the cross. They might even wear a symbol of the cross around their neck, but it makes no lasting difference in their life. They, they find no power in it. They, they find no help in it. But for us who are, who are being saved, who God is saving, the cross is quite different. For believers, the cross is absolute power for life. Please don't forget, dear brother and sister, the power of the cross in your life. So here are five simple applications that I hope just, I hope they just give you joy this morning from uh, John 19. Number one, Jesus bore the cross so you don't have to. Jesus bore the cross so you don't have to. Jesus Christ is your pardon. Because Jesus was crucified for you and because you are united to him by faith, God brings you near to him and lavishes his love on you. Instead of death, you get God's love. Number two, your faith rests on evidence. The Christian faith is not a fairy tale. The Christian faith is not a fable. It's fact. Your faith is built upon the bedrock of truth and reality. You can visit Golgotha. You can study ancient history and see the evidence for crucifixion. You can read credible witnesses, tell their detailed stories of what they saw and how many people were involved in the the crucifixion of Jesus. You can read how ancient prophecies were fulfilled by Christ's cross. You have no reason, my dear friend, to be ashamed of the cross of Christ. It's rational. You are rational for believing it. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. They don't know him like we know him. You are rational. A thinking, wise, intelligent person who trusts in the truth. Don't be timid about believing the Bible. Be confident, be bold, and realize that believing in the gospel is rational. Number three, God is sovereign over every detail of your life. Do I ever need to hear this this morning? And so do you. God is sovereign over every detail of your life. The cross proves that God is sovereign over everything. The details of the cross expose for us how God works everything according to his purpose. If God is sovereign over a tunic and uses clothing to fulfill his ultimate purposes, can God not also use all the details of your life to accomplish his will and to bring you your greatest happiness in him? He will. He will. You see, our perspective is so limited. We just see so little. We want to see more, but we can't. We just don't know what tomorrow holds, what the rest of today holds. We're so limited. We don't have all the answers. There is so much we don't see and understand, but we can be confident in this, that God is working even in the smallest details of our lives. Romans 8.28 is not just for counted cross-stitch or uh, for a greeting card slogan. It's the truth. For those who love God, all things, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's actually true. When life is out of your control, take heart that it is in God's control. God is working for his glory and your joy even when the sky is falling. Just keep your eyes on the cross and God will give you perspective. 
He will. Number four, Jesus loves you and cares for you. Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me. That's not just a kid's song. It's biblical truth. It's truth that gets us through. It's truth that gives us endurance. Do you want unstoppable endurance when things get tough in your life? Then look to the cross and zero in on the loving, compassionate nature of Jesus and how Jesus extends that love and compassion to you. It's yours. You have it. Let me show you something awesome in verses 24 through 27. Notice this contrast between the soldiers who are just selfishly gambling for his clothes and the loving supporters of Jesus. While the soldiers are gambling, here you have Jesus' mother, his aunt, and two other compassionate women, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. They were all standing there near the cross, grieving over Jesus' bitter providence and showing their support. John was there too, the beloved disciple, How deep their sorrow must have been, but yet how deep the love of God was for them at that moment in Christ. As Jesus hung naked and dying on the cross, he looked down and he saw his mom and his beloved friend John and his compassion and love overflowed for Mary. Mary was likely in her 40s, her late 40s or early 50s, and she doubtless was a widow at this point. And so she was in a position of need, and Jesus made sure that his mom would be taken care of. He said to Mary, woman, behold your son. Then to John, behold your mother. And so as the oldest son, Jesus was making provision at that moment for his mom. He was caring for her. He was making sure that she would be okay. He was saying, mom, John is now your son. He's going to take you into his home. He's going to care for you. And mom, you're going to be okay. John, Mary is now your mother. And I want you to care for her just like you would care for your own mother. Jesus' meaning is then clarified later in that verse at the end of verse 27. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mary was cared for. And that's the kind of heart that Jesus had for his mom. And that's the kind of heart that he has for you. Just a quick aside. Roman Catholic doctrine uses verses 26 and 27 along with their magisterium and their tradition to establish Mary as the Holy Mother of the Church. Pope Pius XII placed all Christians beneath Mary's motherhood. He shockingly referred to Mary as, quote, the most holy mother of all the members of Christ. And he taught that Mary was without original or uh, personal sin, That it was Mary who offered Jesus on the cross to the Father as a sort of priestess mediator between God and man. That Mary now reigns in Christ with her Son in heaven and that Mary even intercedes and protects all believers. And you may hear that and think, well, where do they get that? I, I, I don't think that... That's what the Bible is saying, and that's where it's helpful to understand that the doctrinal positions of Roman Catholicism are not derived from Scripture alone, but they're also determined by the magisterium and church tradition, or what popes and bishops have taught throughout the ages. False doctrines like this arrive when sola scriptura leaves. We must base it on Scripture alone. 
So if we stick to Scripture alone as God wants us to, there are some markers in the Scripture that tell us what Jesus had in mind for his mom. For first century standards, Mary was relatively old. Uh, It is commonly accepted that when Jesus was crucified, Joseph had already died. I think the average life expectancy in Jerusalem at that time might have been 29 years old, I think. Um, Lots of things. Obviously, people live longer than that sometimes, but I think that was um, the average or the mean or whatever. So you have that, and um, and then Jesus was the oldest son of Mary, And so he would have had provided for her prior to the beginning of his ministry, and he would need to take responsibility for Mary. And the fact that John took Mary into his own home after the crucifixion confirms that Jesus was simply showing compassion and love and honor for his mom. Jesus would take, or John would take care of her. She would be okay. Mary suffered a bitter providence. She watched her precious son die. But what caused her sorrow was also the source of her eternal joy. The horror of the cross displayed the, ex- the great extent of Jesus' love and care for Mary and for us. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to see how God's bitter providence in our lives, how bad things happen, how that all works for our greatest joy. But it does. Just look at the cross. In one of his poems, William Cowper wrote this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you need to endure, understand that the lavish love of God is shining on you at all times through Christ. Last one, number five, the cross has washed away your guilty stains forever. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. And the blood from his veins is the powerful provision to actually wash away all of your sins forever. What could possibly take from you what the cross has already earned from you? Nothing. Jesus Christ was crucified for you. And like the hymn says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. He was crucified for you and that is enough. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all, not some, all their guilty stains. Now, I usually pray to conclude, but the uh, praise team's gonna come up and I want us to pray together a uh, prayer called The Precious Blood and it's taken from the Valley of Vision. It's a book of... uh, Puritan prayers and devotions that is extremely deep and powerful. And so when you get deep richness in prayers, sometimes it can be hard to track with. So what we're going to do is we're going to read it and pray it together from our hearts. But I just warn you ahead of time, if you fumble over some of the words, trust me, I might. Okay, so don't worry about it. Just keep plugging through and just try to get a few lines, the profound lines of this prayer Uh, that can reinforce this precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray this together. Blessed Lord Jesus, before thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. 
Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite. It's value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper. Born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light, the air supply breath, the earth bear my tread, its fruits nourish me, its creatures subserve my ends. Yet thy compassions yearn over me, thy heart hastens to my rescue, thy love endured my curse, Thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in the blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation.